Morning, Hillcrest. Uh, I'm Brian Stefile. I have the privilege of being one of the elders here, and uh, I'm going to go through our summer series. We just got through James, and now we're spending the summer going through uh, um, various scriptures and parables looking at the kingdom of God and what we can glean from that. And as we know, we're not naive. David talked about this the last several weeks. We're not naive enough to realize, to think that the kingdom is fully here as we look around, uh, but we're not also hopeless as if the kingdom has not already begun. And, and right, I just, for those of you who don't know, um, uh, I'm a high risk, uh, I deal with high risk pregnancies for my occupation, and uh, I was on call this weekend, so Fred's covering my phone for a little bit. Um, but I'd go into the hospital this morning, and already every day it seems like I am met with just examples of this is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, this morning I went into round, and there was another patient with a stillbirth. This is not how God designed it. Um, I had a patient several years back, one of the more tragic stories. Um, you know, patients come for their 20 week scan, super excited to find out if it's a boy or a girl, and I'm more worried about the anatomy. And this young lady came in, and I had to tell her the news that her baby was born with no kidneys. And the lungs wouldn't develop, and this baby would not survive. There's nothing modern medicine could do. And as she carried the pregnancy and grew, She's telling me one day in her prenatal visit that, you know, people would come up to her in the grocery store and be so excited for her. And she would just smile because she knew the truth that this baby wouldn't survive. And it occurs like one in every 10,000 pregnancies. She delivered, and several minutes after she delivered, the baby passed away. I saw her about a year and a half later. She got pregnant again. I told her the increase, there's no increased risk of this happening again. We did a scan a little bit earlier just to reassure her, and we found another birth defect. A birth defect that occurs one out of every 5,000 pregnancies. Lightning struck twice. Now, the good news I told her is that with surgery, survival is really good. It's over 95%. So even though this is devastating news, there's a lot of hope here. Her baby was born a couple weeks early, was doing great in the NICU, and then died of infection a week later. Life is hard, whether we're talking about pregnancy or just life in general. We look at inflation, COVID, marriage is hard, kids, way harder. (laughs) Life is hard. It's not how it's supposed to be. I long for the day when things are being made right. Not about you, but sometimes I struggle Struggle to sing those songs we just sang. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. With every breath that I'm able, I'm going to sing of the goodness of God. I know this is true that God is good, but some days I'm lying if to say with every breath I praise God. When things are not going my way, when I'm getting knocked down, hard to sing those lyrics. And things were not any different to the first century listeners, to the scripture we're going to talk about today. Jesus spoke to his followers often in parables. And the one we're going to examine this morning is found in Matthew chapter 13. So if you open your Bibles or the, the text in the bulletin, Matthew chapter, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 24 to 30, and then 36 to 43. 
And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the weeds along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us this parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. Thank you for your word. Uh, let us just glean what you want. Touch our hearts today, Lord. Open up our minds and our hearts to hear what you want us to hear. And though life is hard, we know you are good. Let us feel that all the time. And through this all, I am not the right person to be up here, Lord. I am so far from where I should be. And let you increase and me decrease, Lord, and let your word shine through me. In your name. Amen. As we talked about before, Jesus often spoke in parables, early stories with a heavenly meaning. But if we look back at Scripture, this wasn't always the case. See, in the early part of Jesus' ministry, he didn't talk in parables. There's a certain point right around chapter 13 in Matthew where he starts to talk about parable, in parables. The disciples pick up on this. And they ask him, why do you speak in parables? This wasn't the beginning of his ministry. They had been with Jesus for a while. And they're confused. Why are you speaking this way? And Jesus explained that the parables have a twofold meaning. One is to reveal the truth for those who are searching. And two, to conceal the truth from those who are indifferent. So if we go back and look, what happened before chapter 13 that caused this shift in Jesus' teaching? In the previous chapter, the Pharisees had publicly rejected Jesus as the Messiah and blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You see, after healing a demon-possessed man, the Pharisees said he did it with the work of a demon. The Pharisees heard it and they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So Jesus' response was to begin preaching in parables. You see, to those who had a preconceived idea against him and a bias against Jesus, these teachings would come across as irrelevant nonsense. But to those who were searching, they would find the truth. So here to set the stage, Jesus goes out of his house, 
He goes to the lake. The crowd starts to come, so he decides to go in a boat and starts preaching in parables. The first one is the parable of the sower, and then the second one is the one we talked about. So who are the players of this parable? Well, we have the master, the field, the enemy, the servants, the good seed, the wheat, and the harvest. And they're all symbolic and representative of something else. Right? And since Jesus clearly tells us, I can't say it any better. Right? The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. We're done, right? <laughs> These are the characters, and Jesus is going to go into this. He answers, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the enemy is the devil, the servants of the reapers are the angels, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the harvest is the end of the age. And he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemies came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. So I don't know about you. If you're ever driving around and you see some sort of crop, whether it's soybeans or something kind of low to the ground, and every now you see a contaminated field where there's corn sticking through, my OCD just wants to kick and I want to pull out that corn. Maybe I'm just the only one. But this is what's happened with the servants. The servants saw these this, these crops or these weeds. They wanted to pull them out. It don't belong. But see, when there's a contaminated field, what you see nowadays with the second crop, at least that second crop is good for something. Right? The extra corn you might be able to eat with your family or you sell it on the market. There's some value there. What Jesus is talking about are weeds, good-for-nothing weeds that should be thrown in the compost for fire. So second crop would have been good, but the weeds are worthless. So the first thing to note here is the servant's response. Master, did you not sow good seed? Now, I don't want to go too much into a tangent here for this parable, because I don't think this is the primary meaning, but if the servants are the angels, can't you imagine even the angels even today asking the same question, right? Saw the Garden of Eden before the fall, how great it was supposed to be. God came to this earth And here we are 2,000 years later, and the angels are confused. God, look at the world. Didn't you plant good seed? They're not blaming God, but it's kind of confusing. My atheist friends would say the same thing. If God's real, why there's so much evil in the world? Master, did you not sow good seeds? Now, not just my atheist friends that say this, right? We do the same thing. When things aren't going our way, at least the way we think they should go, we're confused. It's not supposed to be like this. Life is hard. Why is this happening? We often blame God. But God can't cause evil. He specifically tells us an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. You see, there's opposition to God. There's oppositions to the kingdom. This evil is Satan. He's like a thief in the night who means to destroy God's kingdom. He won't succeed, but he doesn't mean he won't try. 
And unfortunately, if you're like you or me, we never want to take responsibility for our actions. Right? It's not my fault. So when things go, don't go our way, the first thing we do is we're confused. We might blame God, but then we realize that's a bad place to be. And we start to blame Satan. And though Satan is the enemy and causes evil, I think more often than not, I hate to admit it, it's my own decisions that have put me in that position. It's my opposition. Let me give you some examples. We were on vacation to St. Louis a few weeks ago, and I don't eat a lot of carbs nor pasta. And one of my daughters, <coughs> Alexandria, um, really wanted to go to an Italian restaurant. And so it was really good food. It was a great restaurant. But I had a stomachache that night. Whose fault is that? God's? Satan's? It's my fault. Well, really, it's Alexandria's fault, but this is my, my fault for the illustration. Right? We want to blame someone else. And I want to tell you, now, this week has been a busy week. There's three of us physicians in my group. One was on vacation, so we was working, I was working extra shifts. Preparing the sermon. It was my daughter's birthday, a birthday party Friday night. Still getting up at 4.30 in the morning to work out, going to bed exhausted. I was tired. My wife's love language is quality time. We've not had a lot of that this week. So is it shocking that maybe we're a little distant? Now, she's very loving and understands this has been a really rough week. But if I did that week after week, month after month, year after year, would it be shocking if my marriage was falling apart? I'm confused. God, why are you doing this to me? Satan, why are you causing this? At the end of the day, it's me. I can't blame anyone else. I had a conversation with someone years ago who got in some significant troubles for some of their actions. And they turned to me and said, I don't know why Satan made me do it. That's a cop-out. Satan causes evil, but so much we want to blame someone else when we too often, we are the opposition to God. Evil is never caused by God. So the servant said to the master of the house, Master, did you not sow good seed in your fields? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? See, the servants want things to be right, right? Their OCD is kicking in too. This should not happen. Let's fix this. And the master's response is a simple no. Now, I'm really confused here. I don't know much about farming. My expertise is medicine. But I would think in farming, you want to get rid of the weeds. So to prove my theory, I went on to Google, and we know the Internet's never wrong. So this is what Google says, and I quote, The bad news for other plants in your yards is that weeds compete for nutrients in the soil and sunlight, which can lead to stunted growth for your vegetables, flowers, and lawn. On a similar note, weeds also take up space, which can make it harder for gardens to flourish. So the servants seem to be right. Right? Is the master a terrible farmer? Jesus is speaking in parables. But to my 21st century lens, it seems more like a riddle. 
So if I bring up the term bearded Darnell, what, what, is that, what do you make you think about? Is that a member of the Duck Dynasty? <laughs> is that my name of my mechanic? Or maybe a new rock band? What Darnell is, is a weed. Bearded Darnell, Tara is, is a weed that's type of a rye. So it has these small gray kernels. And similar to wheat, it grows in stalks. But it's not good for much. And in fact, Darnell is actually dangerous. Darnell comes from the Belgian word darnay, which means drunkenness. So if you eat Darnell, you may walk around in a, in a stupor and kind of uh, trip around. You may slur your words. You may vomit. And if the Darnell has fungus on it, it can be life-threatening. So this is not just an obnoxious weed that's an irritant. No, this is a dangerous weed. On contrast, wheat, what, wheat's vital, it's nutritious, it's life-giving. We use bread make, to make bread out of it. And in ancient times, they called wheat the bread, the staff of life. So Jesus here is using completely contrasting plants. This dangerous weed called bearded darnel and wheat. The good seeds are the wheat, and the weeds are bearded darnel. And God tells the angels to wait. Don't pull up the weeds. Because in gathering the weeds, the wheat could be affected. How? See, didn't we just learn that pulling weeds is a good thing? But to tell wheat and weeds apart, they are identical when they're newly planted. You cannot tell them apart until they reach maturity. They are identical until they reach maturity, until it's time for the harvest. So if the servants would pull out the weeds, they might be pulling out wheat. They wouldn't know. Again, early in development, both plants are identical. It is not until they're mature. And though this is lost in us today, this would have resonated with first century listeners. Because back then, this happened. People would plant Darnell in farmers' fields. Why would they do it? Out of malicious intent, pure revenge. They had laws, both Jewish laws and Roman laws, that if that was found, the perpetrator would have to pay back all the crops. So this was not an infrequent event in the first century. And the servants of the master house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds? Then how does that have weeds? And he said, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds, the weeds, the darnel, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow until the harvest. See, the servants see the problem and they want to fix it. But God is calling for restraint. Let the weeds live among the wheat. Master didn't buy cheap seeds. The enemy Satan did this out of one pure motive, revenge to destroy God's kingdom. Now I want to go into a little bit more historical context here because how would this have landed with the first century Christians further? 
right? Because every time I read the Old Testament, I sometimes struggle with passages in the Old Testament like this. Are you, and you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, right? God talks about this beautiful promised land. But when I look at Israel, it doesn't look that great. If I had to buy land to grow a farm, I think this would be one of the last places I would choose. But if we look back at what was going on in history, Josephus, a Jewish author, writes, and I quote, The land of Israel is so rich in soil and pasturage and produces such a variety of trees that even the most indolent, the most worthless farmer, me, right, would be tempted by these facilities to devote themselves to agriculture. In fact, every inch of soil has been cultivated by the inhabitants. There is no parcel of wasteland. The average Jewish farmer had four to five acres. There were Pharisees and religious leaders who had thousands. There's one legend of a Pharisee that owned a thousand cities. So what's the contrast here? The problem was Rome. When Rome came, they cut down trees for their siege equipment. They drove away herds. Grass was destroyed. The herds had nowhere to go. Essentially, over time, they planted up vineyards and took them back to Italy. They ravaged the land. And it became a desert. It's been estimated in one article that 80 inches of topsoil have been removed from Israel over the last 1,000 years alone. It never used to always look like this. It was much different. So imagine you are a first century listener. You have four acres of land that used to be bountiful, would produce everything, and now it's a semi-arid desert. Your pharisaical leaders have hundreds if not thousands of acres, and the Roman people above them are now taxing you. You're trying to make ends meet. When you have no crop, getting taxed, and the leaders that you rely on seem like they're in bed with the Romans. The marginalized is who Jesus was talking to. The marginalized were further marginalized. Why would God let the enemy prosper? Why is the world like this? This is not how you designed it, God. This is not our promised land. In Jesus' day, the world wasn't getting any better, and he anticipated the harvest. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out all of his kingdom, all the causes of sin, and all lawbreakers. Though God will wait, so more will come to him. Eventually, there will be a harvest. And though people don't want to believe in hell, Jesus, Jesus clearly states in this passage, they will be gathered out of his kingdom all causes of sin, not some sin, all sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, because hell is real. This is a certainty. And though there's opposition to the, the, by the enemy, currently the wheat and weeds live together, but someday that will not be the case, whether that's tomorrow, this afternoon, or years from now. There will be an end, and God's kingdom, though not fully complete now, 
will be complete. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather all causes of sin. There will be weeping and gnashing teeth, and the righteous will shine like the sun. There is a certainty. God's kingdom will come. This is definitive. Though not immediate, it is certain. In Jesus' day, the world wasn't getting any better. and He anticipated the harvest. In our day, the world's still not getting any better, but we anticipate the harvest. See, in our current 21st century, we look around. We see war, we see famine, we see those with excess, living in luxury, doing evil deeds, seeming to prosper. Our politicians, the Pharisees of the day, if you will, are just as corrupt on both sides of the aisle. The world calls evil good and good evil. God, this isn't right. Why do you allow this? It's tough to see the weeds living among the wheat. The world is not what God designed, and God tells us to be patient. Let both grow together. Be patient. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, I will gather the reapers. Be patient. It's what's best for the wheat. We live together, but not forever. Though most farmers would try to pull those weeds, the master is showing restraint. So not a single kernel of wheat, not a single grain is lost. And to the wheat, those of us that are already treasured Jesus, God tells us, don't judge. See, as I look around this room, I'll be frank, I don't know who the wheat and the weeds are. I may have an inkling based on how you live your life, but when no one but God is watching, who are you really? See, in my, my inkling, right, we all do it, maybe I'm the only one, is to judge people, to size them up, where are they at? God tells us only he judges. Far too often, though, I think what happens, right, is the weeds look pretty good. The weeds may look like wheat. They seem trustworthy, harmless, like they have it all figured out. A prime example, one of my colleagues, awesome individual, she's an atheist. She is awesome in that manner. She cares for patients. She is an awesome physician. She goes, does medical work in Haiti. She's a weed. Right? You wouldn't know. But what scares me more than that is the wheat that look like weeds. Right? We're all sinners. Even though we're saints, we're still broken people. And far too often, the wheat acts just like weeds. So if we're, and I, again, I'm first in line. If we were going to start pulling weeds 
based on just the Ten Commandments, how quickly would I be pulled? It's not easy to identify people. As much as we think we figured it out, God judges, not us. Prime example, look at the life of Saul. Saul's father was a Pharisee. He grew up as a Pharisee, knowing the law forward and backwards. He had a passion for doing what he thought was right. And so when this Christian movement came and threatened the law, he was passionate. He went to Damascus to arrest Christians. And on the way, met Jesus and converted and changed his name to Paul. Right, So many Christians that he persecuted would have said, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And had God come a year earlier than this, Paul would have still been a weed. But Paul was, became a wheat. And how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives, has he touched with his, his teachings? Right? What looked like a weed to early Christians was actually wheat. Patience, it's what's best for the wheat. It's not our job to pull the weeds. There's another modern-day example, and there's right, hundreds of examples I could give, but there's a longtime musician. He's known as the godfather of shock rock. He's this music icon known for his goth music, and elaborate live performances. He enjoyed the rock and roll lifestyle of alcohol, women, and drugs. He announced in 2006 that he was turning away from his reckless ways because he became a born-again Christian. Alice Cooper. In an interview, he said he gets up early in the morning, spends an hour in his Bible and in prayer. What looked like a weed became wheat. In an interview, he said, drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy. But being a Christian, that's a tough call. That's rebellion. Because if we're wheat, right, we sometimes want to judge people and point fingers and are unaware of where people stand. But instead of focusing on behaviors here at Hillcrest, what we want to do is we want to focus on turning people towards more joy in Jesus. It's not the behavior. It's what's in your heart. More joy in Jesus. And the third point is the harvest is coming. There's a certainty here. And if you haven't accepted Jesus, if you're a weed, don't be any longer. Don't wait till this afternoon. Don't wait till this evening. Don't wait till tomorrow. Do it now. And not for life or health, uh, fire insurance, right? Don't come to Jesus so you avoid hell. That's not what this is about. Jesus is the prize. A relationship with Jesus Christ that starts today. You can even be baptized at Camp Fairwood this year. Life is short. We don't know how long we have. The harvest is coming. And to those of you who are wheat, we are everyday missionaries reaching those who have yet to treasure Jesus. The truth is they won't hear about 
Jesus from the unsaved. They don't hear about Jesus in our schools. They won't hear about it in our universities. They won't hear it from the media. They'll hear it from those that are saved. The wheat and the weeds live side by side, but only the wheat possesses the life-sustaining, vital message of the gospel. And so as we talk about evangelism, right, I remember growing up, it just... uh, it was a hard thing. It's uncomfortable. But I find sometimes we fall into two sort of extremes. And one extreme we can say, well, I'm good. I know God. I know Jesus. He saved me. And then we circle ourselves with other Christians, and there's not a single person, not a single weed of influence in our influence. Maybe not, not as severe as the Amish where you're completely out of the world. But we've plotted off our own portion of the field where there's nothing but wheat. Because we're good. We found Jesus. That's not what God calls us to do. The other extreme is just this debilitating fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of, well, I know what right things to say. Or just fear of just the size of this issue. One of my atheist colleagues came up to me. He was reading this book that theology was not completely right, so he wanted me to read it, and we talked about it. He said, so let me get this straight. You're a Christian, and you believe that anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is spending a lifetime in eternity in hell of pure pain and anguish. And so if you believe in Islam or any other religion, you're still going to hell. And I said, yeah, that's what the Bible says. He said, how do you wake up in the morning knowing that almost everyone you see is going to hell? How can you get out of bed? Right? There's this crippling fear, this overwhelming task. So I want to tell you a story that some of you may have heard before. While walking along a beach, an elderly gentleman saw someone in the distance leaning down, picking something up and throwing it into the ocean. As he got closer, he noticed that the figure was that of a young boy, picking up starfish one by one, tossing each one gently back into the water. He came closer still and called out, Good morning, may I ask what it is that you are doing? The young boy paused, looked up and replied, Throwing starfish into the ocean. The old man smiled and said, I must ask then, why are you throwing starfish in the ocean? To this, the young boy replied, well, the sun is up, the tide is going out, and if I don't throw them in, they will die. Upon hearing this, the elderly observer commented, but young man, do you not realize that there are miles and miles of beach, and there are starfish along every mile? You can't possibly make a difference. The young man listened politely. Then he bent down, picked up another starfish, threw it back in the water, passed the breaking waves, and said, it made a difference to that one. Feel the weight of eternity. Here at Hillcrest, we are people helping people find life with Jesus one life at a time. 
God doesn't cause to do it all, one life at a time. So with that, we pray, we watch, and we step. We pray to God to bring people into our lives who have yet to treasure him. And we watch for those opportunities. When those opportunities arise, we step into those conversations and those relationships knowing that God changes hearts. We're just planting seeds. And if you're a weed today, don't wait. So much treasure and joy in Jesus. And though there's opposition to the, God, to the kingdom of God as God is growing his kingdom in our hearts, though it's not immediate, there's a certainty there. His kingdom will come. There is a harvest. Let's pray. Dear Lord, such a powerful message in your gospel of what your kingdom is like. And please forgive us for so many times myself first in that line of acting like a weed. When you've done so much for us, let us become more like wheat. Not for our own benefit, Lord, but so that people may see our lives as different and wonder why and ask questions. And may that be a witness. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I just pray that you will soften hearts and make yourself real to those who have yet to treasure you. And though life is hard, thank you that you are never evil and that you are always good. 